Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. So honestly, this was supposed to be a last minute mini episode. However, the uh, content (laughs) is a little longer, so it's, I guess, just going to be a regular episode. But just some housekeeping before we get in. Uh, I won't say anything about this other than please keep the people of the Ukraine in your thoughts. That is all. Upcoming episodes. Uh, we've got some upcoming episodes about time travel, child sacrifice, um, some other shit, dystopian societies. So all of those are in the works, so they will be coming soon, so stay tuned. The giveaway is still live. Technically, today is the last day, but I might extend it for another few days. Um, So check out the Instagram if you're interested. (laughs) I think technically only two people have entered, so, you know. (laughs) Whatever. Maybe everyone will get something. The first ever Primordia Book Club meeting will be soon. So if you're interested in that, I will leave a link where you can download a free version of the first book that we are discussing in the episode description. So look for that. And I will also leave you a new Discord link to join the server if you're interested in joining the book club because that's where we're going to hold our meetings. Please excuse. Bless you. Um, my dog is sneezing and wanting to play all of a sudden. Alright, with only a few days left to spare, let's dive into this Black History Month special episode in which we'll discuss strange and scary folklore from Africa, as well as some terribly true scary shit here in America. I think it's important to acknowledge the struggle that African Americans have have had to endure, and... Um, have to endure just to live and survive in this shitty country. So we're going to touch on some terrible things that they've endured at the hands of so-called fellow Americans. Let that be your content warning. And that is all. Uh, If you don't already know, Primordia is an inclusive podcast and community that fully supports any and all peoples and beings, regardless of skin color, orientation, religion, etc. and all of the above, all of the things. Anyways, let's just jump in. We're going to start off with probably one of the most, in my opinion, horrifying on the list. Pinky Pinky is a South African urban legend surrounding school toilets. While Pinky Pinky mostly seems to affect girls, the being is said to occupy the spaces between the boys' toilets and the girls' toilets and does also affect boys in some cases. Described as a human-animal hybrid with albino or pink skin, Pinky Pinky is horrifying and stalks prepubescent children in the toilets of the schools. If you wear the color pink and plan on entering the bathrooms, beware because you'll probably become the next victim of Pinky Pinky. It's considered to be close to a tokoloshe by some, which is a malevolent Zulu Kosa water spirit, or water sprite, sorry, who is dwarf or goblin-like in appearance and nature. In Zulu folklore, these creatures attack people in their sleep, which is why most people in the Zulu culture used to sleep with their beds raised above the floor. Tokoloshe can also become invisible by drinking water or ingesting stones. So if the Pinky Pinky is a Tokoloshe, it would be incredibly easy for them to go unseen then in a restroom. Tokoloshe can inflict pain with their long gangly fingers by scratching or choking their victims, but the Pinky Pinky Tokoloshe is known to do much, much worse, including rape and murder. I came across a book, well, first I just came across the relevant chapter within the book, Uh, But the book is titled Methodologies for Mapping a South African Girlhood in the Age of AIDS, and it was written by Rilla Bahile Mulletsane, I'm so sorry, Anne Smith and Linda Chisholm, and published in 2008. 
Chapter 3 of the book explores the urban legend and possible real explanations for the claims of sightings and attacks, and is aptly titled Pinky Pinky and Toilets, Disrupting the Silences Around Sexual Violence in and Around Schools Through Photo Voice. In the chapter, researchers basically have the female-identifying and the male-identifying students each take photos of areas of the schools they felt were safe and those that they felt were unsafe. When the researchers categorized and sorted through the photographs taken by all of the school children, they found a huge amount of them to be of the toilets or the areas around them. There's one photo in the book of one of the toilet stalls, and it looks fucking terrible. The wall is half gone. It looks as if it's been ripped away, exposing the toilet to the view of anyone standing on the outside of the stall. It looks dark in the room and just unpleasant in general as a space. So let's take a look at a few excerpts regarding Pinky Pinky from the book and uh, what the researchers found. Pinky Pinky is an urban legend in South Africa, a kind of featureless boogeyman, a pink tokoloshe, half human, half creature, who lives between the girls' and boys' toilets at school. The feared entity is a creature with one claw and one paw, and it preys on little girls whom it threatens to rape if they wear the color pink. The visual artist Penny Siopis, Siopis, I don't know, I'm sorry, says she was reminded of this icon of childhood fear when her son returned from school with the news that a classmate of his had presented an essay on this figment of childhood fear in a class discussion on urban mythology. So Siopis went on a personal exploration of the feared entity, producing a series of paintings. Uh, one of the paintings is in the book, by the way, so if you're interested in looking, you can preview the book online. Back to it. Pinky Pinky seems to have emerged in 1994. A pink hybrid creature, it is half man, half woman, half human, half animal, and half dog, half cat. Described sometimes as a white tokoloshe, albino, boogeyman, stranger, it is imagined... It is an imagined character that finds shape in various tellings of the myth. Pinky Pinky, for example, terrorized prepubescent children lying in wait for them at school toilets. Penny C. Opus's Pinky Pinky work is a fascinating investigation into a whole range of issues around personal and public narratives in relation to fear and trauma in South Africa, particularly as experienced by schoolgirls. Girls can see it, but boys can't, Siopas told a small band of art enthusiasts on a walkabout tour at Goodman Gallery. As she observes, When I was a teenager, I once saw a pink drawing of a creature on a wall. People told me it was Pinky Pinky and that Pinky Pinky was a scary thing like a boogeyman. Pinky Pinky seems to have been dormant for a while, a generation or two, as very few adults know Pinky Pinky but the current generation of school children are very familiar with Pinky Pinky. It seems to have lived in the old South Africa and to have been resurrected and is living in our cities now. The book goes on to say, Indeed, notwithstanding the apparent mythical status of Pinky Pinky, using the toilets such as they are in many schools in sub-Saharan Africa is risky business for girls, particularly in the context of gender-based violence and sexual abuse. The place of school toilets, both as private and emblematic of a private bodily function, particularly for girls, and as public, in the sense of being an official component of the school grounds, renders them a site for deepening our understanding of the complexities of the lives of girls and women in sub-Saharan Africa. This is particularly so since these toilets are far from being private spaces as possible in terms of their location, the absence of doors, and so on. Quote, Pinky Pinky, as Sarah Nuttall writes in her analysis of Siopus's install installation, is a creature that lives between toilets, those places that deal in that which in that which must be hidden from public view, a foundational space, as George Batele tells us, because we can have no society without its taboos, a space, therefore, of potential transgression. In addition to the gendered cultural spaces, as discussed in Chapter 2, found in many South African communities, the physical space also presents barriers to the girls' safety and by implication to the achievement of desired MDGs, whatever MDGs are. 
Thus, in the chapter, we use Pinky Pinky as a way of framing field work in South African on gender in South Africa on gender-based violence, just one potential transgression in and around schools, focusing in particular on the place of toilets in the work. It was purported that the headmasters, some headmasters had even temporarily closed down schools in South Africa due to increasing reports of pinky pinky and cases of sexual violence in and around restrooms or toilets, as they call them. I couldn't find any such reports actually made, but maybe they're inaccessible here in America, or perhaps they simply don't exist. Whatever you make of this one, the legend of Pinky Pinkly is surely a haunting one. Let's travel up just a bit from South Africa and over and over to Zimbabwe. Hidden within Zimbabwe's beautiful and beautiful is an understatement here, in Nyanga National Park, Mount Nyangani stands at 8,504 feet tall and is an imposing figure to locals. Mount Nyangani is the highest mountain in the country and a sacred mountain that houses native spirits, many of which can be angered very easily and are vindictive, according to those previously mentioned local tribes. Now, I just had to take a look at a bunch of different pictures and get different vantage points on the sacred mountain. And it seems like it would be a really fun, enjoyable, and relatively mild summit, right? It always seems that way. Well, apparently that's far from the case. Its nickname is the mountain that swallows people. Ooh. If you plan to hike the mountain or the areas around it, locals suggest that you first ask for for permission from the area's elders and receive their blessings. You'll also want to refrain from wearing red clothing, using profanity, or engaging in any type of sexual activity. Also, urinating on the mountain is bad, um, as these things anger the gods and spirits residing there. If you see colorful or strange snakes or animals behaving oddly as if they are watching you, ignore them. If the trees speak to you and you speak back or acknowledge them in any way, you're a goner. If you don't follow these and many other rules while hiking the many mountain paths on Mount Nyangani, you'll surely get lost, disappeared by the spirits, until they feel you or your relatives have repented appropriately for your behavior. Weather on Mount Nyangani can change rapidly and become quite intense, with torrential thunderstorms and powerful winds, as well as extreme temperature spikes and dips. This alone makes Mount Nyangani a formidable hike, or at least one to approach with caution and skill. Top the weather, terrain, and natural predators with the supernatural predators of the area, and you've got yourself a, well, probably maybe a zero point? Who knows? There have been many strange occurrences recorded on the mountain, from disappearances to eerie accidents and falls, even cases of predatory stalking and electrical equipment malfunctions. People have reported seeing strange lights while walking, while others have said that a thick fog seemed to manifest and follow them around. Some visitors have said that the trees eventually began to contort and twist into the images of human faces that would whisper things to them, or that animals would follow them around as if watching them, some with glowing eyes. Most recall becoming disoriented or confused at some point, and numerous people have actually become lost on the mountain. In 1981, the two preteen daughters of former government official Tichiandepi Masaya disappeared without a trace on the mountain. There was an extensive search both on the ground and in the air, but despite their efforts, nothing was ever found of the two girls, their clothing or their property, or anything else. There was there there were several more unexplained disappearances in the area in the 80s as well that many local tribe members believed to be the work of the spirits of the mountain. Fast forward to 2014 and you have the infamous case of Zaid Dada. On January 4, 2014, 31-year-old Zaid Dada set off on a hike with his wife and another couple. After much hiking, Dada's wife and the couple got too tired to continue on, so they started to head back and left Dada to continue on with his hike. Though they were only separated for a very short time, Dada never returned to the rest of the group, including his wife, and so the the group were weary and notified authorities. 
A search was conducted, but Zaydara was never found. Apparently, after he had separated from the group, he was spotted in passing by some other hikers while walking along a stream. After that, however, his whereabouts are and remain unknown. The authorities who investigated the case speculate that he could have gotten lost and slipped from a cliff edge to an accidental death, but no remains have been found to corroborate this theory or any other. In April of 2020, two eight-year-old twin boys from the Nyanga area went on a trip to the mountain with their father and seven-year-old cousin to recover stray cattle. According to the news article I found, after a strong storm ended up hitting the mountain unexpectedly, the small family was forced to spend the night on the mountain. As with other cases, search parties were dispatched. This time, however, they would get kind of lucky. All four of them were found, unconscious and... They were rushed to the hospital. Tanatswa was unfortunately pronounced dead when they arrived at the hospital, and his twin brother Tendai died very shortly afterward, I think just a matter of moments. Father Shingirai and cousin Anesu would fortunately survive the ordeal. The article was written shortly after the incident occurred, and it states that the police were yet to speak with the two survivors to ask for specifics, and I wasn't able to find anything else on the case, so, unless they come forward again to tell their story and we can access it, I guess we'll never know what happened. Let's rewind a bit to the 1980s for another case on the mountain, though this one is a little different in that the missing people return alive with details. In the early 1980s, a senior government official and two buddies were off on the mountain for an adventure when they got lost for four days. Of course, authorities, family, and friends searched the area during the time, but they weren't found until local tribe leaders made appeasements to the spirits and rituals. The group recalled that they thought the ordeal only lasted a few hours, and that they had seen people searching and calling out for them, but it was as if they were invisible and couldn't be seen or heard in return. They, they reported feeling dazed and wandered around without really knowing where they were going or how to get back. Chimitza is a limbo or in-between state of being, almost a state of suspension that the spirits hold those that anger them in until they are appeased. This trance-like state has been reported by another, by other almost missing survivors as well. One such survivor is 20-year-old British University student Thomas Geisford. Thomas had just won an award called the Wallace Watson Award Lectures, which provides an opportunity for a student or group of students to experience a challenging outdoor survival adventure anywhere in the world. Now, I'm not sure if this was the trip that Thomas had chosen as the recipient of this award, but nonetheless, he went hiking on Mount Nyangani in November of 2014 with the intent and determination to summit alone. In the early evening hours, Thomas said that a thick fog descended around him, which disoriented him enough that he decided to pitch a tent and wait out the fog and fear that he would become lost. Soon, a thunderous rainstorm swept through the area, forcing Thomas to shelter in place overnight. During the night, he recalls that he had strange feelings and noticed animals watching him from the darkness surrounding his camping area. Fortunately, he remembered to ignore the animals and other strange things so that he wouldn't be disappeared by the spirits of the mountain. He said of his account, according to a source article, I prayed and slept there for ten hours. Several scary snakes approached me. I never disturbed them. They came in numbers, but I stood still. Various animals frequented the place and I could see shining red eyes of several animals staring at me. My character was tested. I remained steadfast. I woke up the following morning after the fog had cleared. I climbed down before I proceeded to Leopard Rock on foot. Luckily, Thomas would make it out of his, his ordeal alive and able-minded enough to recall the strange events that occurred that almost got him lost. Perhaps he would have been taken by the spirits of the mountain for breaking some mysterious unknown rule. Who knows? Apparently, the Travel Channel covered or reported on Mount Nyangani in an episode of Lost in the Wild. Um, I have not seen this, but if you're interested, give it a watch and let me know what you think of it. Alright, moving on over to the island of Madagascar, let's discuss the 
Crinoida dagiana, also known as the man-eating tree of Madagascar. Dun dun dun. Now, before you get too excited, this one is a hoax. <laughs> it's not even a real urban legend, so, you know, burp, burp, burp. At the end of April in 1987, a reporter by the name of Edmund Spencer decided to concoct a tale that would be well-received and believed by many for decades, and the story even sparked quests to seek out the tree by explorers. Spencer reported to the New York World newspaper a wild story as told by a fictional man named Carl Lecce in the form of a letter. According to Lecce, he had gone himself to the island and had encountered a people known as the Makoto, which were also fictional, dang it, who re revered a tree that was known to eat people, like, eagerly. <laughs> Lecce describes the tree in his account, stating, If you can imagine a pineapple eight feet high and thick in proportion, resting upon its base and denuded of leaves, you will have a good idea of the trunk of the tree. From the apex of this truncated cone, at least two feet in diameter, eight leaves hung sheer to the ground like doors slung back to their hinges. On their hinges. These leaves, which were jointed at the top of the tree at regular intervals, were about 11 or 12 feet long and shaped very much like the American agave or century plant. They were two feet through the thickest part and three feet wide, tapering to a sharp point that looked like a cow's horn, very convex on the outer surface, and on the inner surface, slightly concave. This concave face was thickly set with very strong thorny hooks, like those upon the head of the cone. These leaves, hanging thus limp and lifeless, dead green in color, had in appearance the massive strength of oak fiber. The apex of the cone was a round, white, concave figure, like a small plate set within a smaller one. This was not a flower, but a receptacle, and there exuded into it a clear, treacly liquid, honey-sweet, and possessed of violent, intoxicating, soporific properties. From underneath the rim, so to speak, of the undermost plate, a series of long, hairy, green tendrils stretched out in every direction toward the horizon. These were about seven or eight feet long each and tapered from four inches to a half inch in diameter, yet they stretched out stiffly as iron rods. Above these, from between the upper and under cup, six white, almost transparent palpi reared themselves toward the sky, twirling and twisting with a marvelous incessant motion, yet constantly reaching upward. Thin as reeds and frail as quills, apparently, they were yet five or six feet tall and were so constantly and vigorously in motion, with such a subtle, sinuous, silent throbbing against the air, that they made me shudder, in spite of myself, with their suggestion of serpents flayed, yet dancing on their tails. Leche was lucky enough to witness a sacrifice ritual in which a woman was forced to climb the tree. Once at a certain height, the tree began to ensnare the woman and then devoured her, liquefying her insides and strangling her all the while with its live tendrils. Again, this story inspired expeditions in search of the tree for decades, as is evident in this 1932 news article, which I will read for you now. British scientists to seek tree reported to devour human beings. London, August 18th. A tree which devours human beings, particularly young women, is the main objective of an expedition to Madagascar, planned shortly by British scientists. It was announced today. The man-eating tree reported on the island of Sinbad, the sailor, is said to have the shape of a large pineapple. Natives, according to the scientists, place young girls on it, whereupon ten tentacles reach out, draw in, crush the horde, the... <laughs> crush the burden, and consume all but the bones. This tree also secretes an intoxicating liquor very popular with the natives, according to the scientist's report. And that's it. All right. <clears throat> now let's move on to Anansi, the original Spider-Man. Now, Anansi gets his origin with the Ashanti people of Ghana. Anansi is the son of Niame, the sky god, and owner of all stories and knowledge, and Asaase Ya, the earth god. Known originally for being a trickster, Anansi's deeds were mischievous enough that some stories tell that his parents turned him into a half spider, half human, as punishment. 
He was responsible for the transition between night and day and ended up convincing his father, Niame, through performing a series of tests, um, which he passed cleverly, to give him all of the knowledge and wisdom of the world. Anansi is also known by some or to some people here in America because West African people from Ghana were captured and then subsequently brought over here to America and enslaved. Stories of Anansi or Aunt Nancy here in America were passed down orally before bed or to encourage younger peoples to work hard for their potential freedom. Because Anansi is also a trickster god, I guess there are some American twists of his tale where he gets like um, revenge on slave masters. So I could see how that would be a really cool, you know, thing to tell them to keep the hope alive. Um, there are several stories regarding Anansi and his clever acquisition of the world's wisdom. And I've linked a few of those stories and online articles for you all in the sources list. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the restless spirits of the undead are known as Biloko or Eloko in singular form. The Mongo people of the DRC have long believed that Biloko are vengeful spirits of ancestors that have scores to settle with living people or have unfinished business. They are said to be malicious and can even hurt living people who invade their parts of the forests. They can cast spells on people with their tiny bells, causing them to become disoriented and lose their way. Sound familiar? And they are known to hide in hollow trees in the darkest, most dense parts of the jungle. Biloko are described as dwarf-like, hairless creatures with mouths large enough to swallow humans whole, with sharp claws for ripping at victims and climbing trees. Aside from being malevolent towards some of the living, Boloko are known to be guardians and protectors of the jungles and the animals and life teeming within them. Here's a short tale regarding a Boloko pulled from a website source but originally taken from a book titled African Mythology, an Encyclopedia of Myth and Legend, written by Jan Nappert and published in 1995. The tale goes... One day a hunter took his wife, at her insistence, into the forest where he had a hut with a palisade around it. When he went out to inspect his traps, he told her, When you hear a bell, do not move. If you do, you will die. Soon after he had left, she heard the charming sound of a little bell coming closer, for the Eloko had a good nose for feminine flesh. Finally, a gentle voice asked to be led into his room. It was like the voice of a child. The woman opened the door and there was an Iloko, smelling like the forest, looking small and innocent. She offered him banana mash with fried fish, but he refused. We eat only human meat. I have not eaten for a long time. Give me a piece of your arm. At last, the woman consented, totally under the spell of the Iloko. That night, the husband found her bones. All right, we're going to move away from old urban legends and mythological creatures and turn to human-caused terrors. Aww. But before we jump into the terrible shit in America, let's discuss the South African apartheid, specifically the anti-occult police of the apartheid. In the last episode, we touched on the, sat the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s and its effects in the U.S., but now we're going to touch on the effects here in... Well... <laughs> over and in South Africa during the same time period. So just a quick history snippet for those that need the brush up. Um, apartheid is an Afrikaans word meaning apartness or separateness, and apartheid was in effect in South Africa from roughly 1948 until 1994. It was a system of organized racism and racial segregation meant to keep the whites in power and everyone else um, you know, afraid and feeling lesser than. In 1994, Nelson Mandela was freed from prison and worked with others to write up some shit that ended the apartheid for good and declared South Africans and of all backgrounds free. Nelson Mandela would then become the first post-apartheid president of South Africa. Woohoo! And if I got any of that wrong and you know in our history buff, please correct me and let me know. 
Two years prior to the official end of the apartheid, Minister of Law and Order at the time, Adrian Vlock, ordered a Dr. Kobus Jonker to establish an occult-related crime unit that just became known as the Anti-Occult Police or Unit, with Jonker being at the head. Jonker was dubbed the Hound of God for his work in the unit, and he claims to have investigated upwards of 250 cases of occult-related crimes per year during the unit's peak in the 90s, but no official numbers have ever been given, even presently. Jonkers apparently had a heart-to-heart with Christian Jesus after witnessing some brutal realistic, ritualistic stuff and began devoting his time to sniffing out occult crimes. According to Vice, co-workers didn't like entering his office because it contained creepy shit like candles made from human fat, chained Bibles, and an odd sign above his office door. I can't remember what the sign said, but you can read the Vice article. Now, one of the prerequisites to joining the unit was being Christian, which is laughable. But what better way to battle Satan and Jesus' adversaries, I guess. Now, anyway, the unit wasn't officially disbanded until 2006, though it was then rebranded and reignited under a different name, the SAP's Harmful Religious Practices Unit. They investigate alleged cases of vampirism, rape and attack by tokoloshe spirits, spiritual curses, quote, astral coercion, and the works. You know, the good shit. Because of the number of satanic and religious-fueled crimes that are still reported in South Africa, some believe there is a real need for this type of unit, even though it had its origins in religious oppression and even racism. But I will say that sacrifices and ritual killings that still continue in parts of Africa and elsewhere need to be stopped. And if it means that a weird anti-occult unit exists in South Africa, then so be it. Muti murders are ritual murders committed that are are usually committed against children for a number of different reasons. Um, and, And... you know, this is actually a perfect segue moment, so I'll take it. I'm, I'll cover Muti murders and others like them in more detail in an upcoming episode about child sacrifices. So, you know, stick around if you want to know more about them, but I'm not going to go into detail here for the sake of that episode. We're traveling now from Africa over onto America to discuss some horrible shit that Americans put African Americans through during times of slavery and segregation. I think it is all important history that we need to acknowledge and not brush aside as if it were nothing, so we'll discuss just a few cases that I wanted to bring to light. One of these might be familiar to you, but I'm hoping the other two are unfamiliar territory. If you know, though, and have different thoughts on the subject matter, please let me know what you think. I would love to know. Now let's dive in, starting with the one that I think most of you are probably familiar with. In the summer months of 1921, two days of violence ended with anywhere from 30 to 300 people dead, more than 800 people injured and hospitalized, over 6,000 people interned, and 1,400 properties within a 40-block area decimated in Oklahoma. I'm referring to the Tulsa Race Massacre. It all began when on May 30, 1921, an African-American man and professional shoe shiner by the name of Dick Rowland was riding in an elevator in the Drexel Building with the elevator operator, who was a 17-year-old white girl named Sarah Page. Somehow, Rowland was accused of an assault or altercation against Page, and so he was arrested until authorities could investigate the matter. Newspapers in the area started printing stories of rape, and even one mentioned that they had planned a gathering later that next evening to lynch Rowland. The next day, on May 31st, white dicks rode up to the courthouse where Rowland was being held, and despite people's efforts to protect him and barricade the top floor of the courthouse, the white dicks got in. Kind of sounds like the insurgency at the Capitol. Anyway... An old white dick tried to disarm one of the men protecting Rowland, who happened to be African-American, and during the scuttle, the man ended up shooting the old white dick. Of course, this was the real catalyst for the massacre, and it set in motion a day and a half of slaughter and destruction. 
African Americans living in Tulsa in the Greenwood District, which was a very prominent area at the time and was even called the Black Wall Street, were pushed back into their community as if it were a pogrom in action. Tulsa was an affluent area that was built up through the hard work and dedication of African Americans within that community, so sprawling it had a school, a library, a hospital, its own newspaper, a nice grocery store, doctors, lawyers, you fucking name it. And it was all destroyed in the span of a day and a bunch of white prick by a bunch of white pricks, many of whom had been deputized by law enforcement in nearby areas. Through the night of May 31st and into the day on June 1st, 1921, white rioters and some officers looted and burned over 1,400 buildings and homes and shot and injured, shot, injured, and killed at least 35 African Americans. Now, there were a few white casualties, but I'm not going to mention those. On June 1st, martial law was declared by the governor and the massacre ended. This once thriving community was now left in splinters, and over 6,000 Tulsa citizens were then forced, almost forcibly held at the convention center and the fairgrounds for up to eight days afterwards. There is talk that up to 300 people were killed during the massacre, though the Oklahoma Office of Vital Statistics has only been able to uh, to definitely link 36 deaths to the Tulsa Race Massacre. Recently, four areas in or near Tulsa became of interest to investigators who suspected that those areas contained mass graves from the 1921 massacre. A multi-tiered investigation occurred that included excavations, and that actually just all ended. And they planned to present their findings from all four dig sites on March 1st, so in just a few days. I've linked an article regarding this investigation and where you can get updates in the source list, so check out the episode show notes if you're interested. It'll be source 14. Just six and some odd months before the Tulsa massacre in Oklahoma, there was another massacre of African Americans in America. Way down here in Florida, actually. That's not not surprising, but perhaps you've heard of it. I had not until just a few months ago. Okoee is a city in Orange County that's barely a hop and a skip from Orlando here in Florida. It's a decent-sized city now, but in 1920, it was was unincorporated and only had around a thousand citizens. Or residents, whatever. At the time, though Okoee and surrounding areas were somewhat integrated racially, White Dixiecrats dominated Florida and much of the South, while the African-American population was predominantly Republican. African-Americans now had the right to vote for about 50 years, but voter oppression and poll taxes were rampant against them from the white community. Let me also mention that a huge part of the white community was in some way associated with the Klan, or KKK, So when they show up at the polls, it's meant to create an air of intimidation and fear so that African-American citizens wouldn't want to turn up to cast their vote. It's incredibly unfortunate that it wasn't stopped, but almost all of the police force, allegedly, was also part of the Klan in Okoe, so they might have instigated it. Who knows? Anyway, in November of 1920, a very wealthy African-American man named Mose Norman decided he, along with most of the African-Americans in the community at the time, wanted a Republican to take the seat and went out to vote for, I think, John Cheney. Cheney had been threatened by the Klan and Democrats for encouraging African-Americans to get out and vote and such and such and such. Mose Norman went out to vote, but the entire town had been taken over by the Klan on the 1st of November, where they paraded the streets and used megaphones to warn African-American citizens that they weren't permitted to vote. They camped out at poll centers to ensure that any who tried would be sent away, or that those who did vote um, would somehow have their votes disappear. When Norman left the poll center he had tried to vote at and sought Cheney's counsel, Cheney had Norman go back to the town with a list of names and demand to be allowed to vote. When he did so, he showed up with a shotgun, according to reports, and uh, probably just to defend himself, I'm fucking sure, but a white mob formed and struck Norman in the head with his own gun. 
He was able to get away and fled to the home of his friend, Julius July Perry. The mob had dispersed by the time um, he made it to Perry's house, but a sheriff knocked on the door of Perry's home and ordered one of them to come with him. When Perry was put in a headlock by the sheriff, Perry's daughter ended up shooting the sheriff in the arm. Now, this was an accident. She pointed the gun at the sheriff's belly, and then when she turned the gun to move it away, it went off and hit him in the arm, according to reports. Anyways, um, the sheriff rolled out of the door, fled from the scene, got his partners to come back around. Gunfire ensued from both sides, and the Perrys defended their home. Two officers were killed, so they retreated to gather reinforcements from the clan, and during that time, the Perrys fled the home. July Perry was found, however, and beaten nearly to death. They lynched him from a telephone pole on a highway between Okoe and Orlando and shot him repeatedly as he was hanging. Afterwards, the mob's need to kill wasn't quenched, so they set out shooting into homes and burning them. Any people that tried to escape their burning homes were shot to death, which had to have been a terrible decision to have to make when faced with that reality. Like, which would you prefer? Like, burning to death or being shot? Fucking terrible. Men, women, including pregnant women, and children were brutally murdered into the hours of November 4th, 1920. Though again, counts, though again accounts vary, 50-plus African Americans lost their lives at the hands of whites. Homes were destroyed and a community was lost. It didn't end here, though. For weeks after the massacre, the Klan set up militias around Okoe, Orlando, and other nearby areas and did not allow any African Americans that had survived and were able to flee to return to their homes. Those that tried were forced to sell their lands, and by 1930, no African Americans were on the census for the town of Okoe. That just makes me shudder. African Americans wouldn't return to Okoe until the late 70s and wouldn't work in the city until almost the 90s. Actually, there was apparently a sign hanging at the town line until 1959 that read, Dogs and Negroes Not Allowed, which is just fucking disgusting. Alright, last but not least... On July 31, 1986, the body of 19-year-old Keith Warren was found deceased, half-hanging from a tree in the woods near an apartment complex in Silver Spring, Maryland. To the, to the dismay and shock of his family, who was notified about six hours after the body was found and a scene set up, his death was ruled a suicide. To one of the two that found his body, to Keith's family and to myself, uh... I think he was lynched. I actually started researching this case a bit after watching a documentary series on Discovery Plus called Uprooted, which I recommend if you're interested in Keith Warren's case. You can also visit the website dedicated by the family to finding justice for Keith, which I'll link in the source list for you as well. Anyway, Keith's death was ruled a suicide and his clothing, along with the rope found at the scene, which I find fucking disrespectful, was handed over to the family shortly thereafter. Keith's mother and the rest of his family is so convinced that he didn't commit suicide, as he had no reasons to, um, that uh, they just, they continue to fight to this day. Police argue, however, that just a few days prior to his death, Keith got into an argument with his mother or another family member over a car, and because he was told he couldn't have access to the car, that saddened him enough that he completed suicide. And so, here's why it doesn't make sense. Number one, no medical examiner ever arrived on the scene to determine a cause of death. Instead, it was determined through correspondence from the officer on the scene and the medical examiner's office, like, over the phone, but not in person. Because of this, his body was released to a funeral home immediately instead of to the medical examiner's office for further investigation or confirmation of the ruling of a suicide as a cause of death. Two, let's back up to the actual scene. His body was found hanging from a kind of thin rope and from a small-ass tree. A tree so thin that it was bent over, almost at a 90-degree angle, under the weight of Keith's body. Strange, right? 
We'll get into the scene more in a few bullet points. Three, a month after his death, his mother wanted to see the tree where his body was found, but upon inspection and asking authorities, she discovered that it had been cut down. Four, on April 9th, 1992, which would have been Keith's 25th birthday, a mysterious manila envelope was found on the doorstep of the Warren home. Upon opening the package, Keith's mother found five photographs of the scene, which included Keith's body, pictures they had never before seen. This is where it's bizarre. Not only were the pictures sent with no return address, but they show shocking things about the crime. The clothing Keith was wearing in the pictures did not belong to him, nor were they the clothes given to the family by authorities after his body was found. Furthermore, the pictures show his hands perfectly by his sides and his legs out in front of him, touching each other and touching the ground. It almost looks like he's sitting on like a stool or something that isn't below his butt. The pictures also show that the rope used to hang Keith was tied to the base of another tree some 25 feet away, anchored and rope like fucking wrapped about in such a way as if to hold Keith at the height that he was at and then anchored into position, which would have been impossible for him to do alone if he had committed suicide. Despite these photos being mysteriously delivered to the family, to the dismay of the police, no further investigations were done and no other witnesses or persons of interest were spoken with. So fucking weird. I can see from the pictures how he could have been lynched by a group because it looks like his hands were held down and that his feet were held by someone else who was like pulling him against the rope as he was hanging. Um, I don't know. As of 2021, I would love for you to come to your own conclusion, though, and look at the pictures. Let me know what you think. But as of 2021, his death um, is still ruled a suicide despite the family's valiant efforts to reclassify his death or have anyone reopen the case. All right. Some reading recommendations for you guys. I've got some online articles here. Legacy of Trauma, Context of the African-American Existence Black Spirits, The Ghost Lore of Afro-American Slaves Men's Demonica, Guilt, Justice, and the Occult in South Africa, Comparative Studies in Society and History by Cambridge Core. Then the State of California Department of Justice Study on Occult Justice During the Satanic Panic, which I, th- I just found but thought it was interesting for this episode and the last episode. And here are the books. Methodologies for Mapping a Southern African Girlhood in the Age of AIDS by Rilla Bihile, Mulitsane, Anne Smith, and Linda Chisholm, 2008. Madagascar, Land of the Man-Eating Tree by Chase Salmon Osborne, 1924. African Mythology, An Encyclopedia of Myth and Legend by Jan Nappert, 1995. Mine Boy by Peter Abrahams. The Dark Thirty, Southern Tales of the Supernatural by Patricia C. McKissack. And Haints, American Ghosts, Millennial Passions, and Contemporary Gothic Fictions by Arthur Redding. Some film recommendations for you guys. Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, because the lead female role is played by uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. Also, that's a great movie. It's one of my favorites. If you've never seen it, please watch it. The Uprooted documentary series that I mentioned. Ma. Get Out. Us. And my favorite, His House. If you have not seen His House yet on Netflix, please go fucking watch it. All right. That's going to be a wrap on this week's episode of the Primordia podcast, Your Source for Strange. I enjoyed going on for almost an hour with you guys about strange and creepy African folklore and grisly shit here in America. I mean, I didn't really enjoy talking about that, but it needs to be, it needs to be spoken about. So yeah, 
Uh, but I hope that you all have enjoyed the episode. Please let me know what you thought. Uh, also, go check out the giveaway and enter. Remember, uh, you know, if enough people enter, I might just give something to everybody. So, I mean, if if you want. But, as always, remember, if you are someone or you know someone who has a strange story to share, whether it be a creepy occurrence, an off-putting situation, high strangeness, creepy coincidences, alien stories, um, other creepy shit, let me know. Reach out. We'd love to feature you in an episode. I would love to feature you in an episode of the podcast. Have you on it or just write down, you know, just I'd love to give you credit for it. But anyways, let me know. I want to know all the things, all the creepy shit. I want to know. Send it to me. You can send it to me at primordia.bwc at gmail.com or you can comment or send us a message over on Facebook or Instagram. Link in the podcast description or links in the podcast description. As always, I think the Stay Strange sale is still up in the Etsy shop, so check that out. But thank you so, so, so much for listening. Your support means everything, and I really appreciate it. I'm excited for the book club meeting. Again, I'll leave a Discord link for you. But I am signing off for this episode. Stay strange. <laughs>